Welcome to Handmaids and Harless, a weekly podcast that explores both the Handmaid's Tale and Harlots series produced by Hulu. This podcast is marked as heavy spoilers, as it will include episode-by-episode synopsis, as well as analysis of both shows and their written source material. The textual references for this podcast are The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, interviews, essays, analysis, and other available materials regarding Miss Atwood's book and forthcoming second installment, Testaments. Textual references for all Harlots-related podcasts will be taken from Hallie Rubinold's book, The Covent Garden Ladies, Pimp, General Jack, and the Extraordinary Story of Harris's Lists, as well as interviews, essays, analysis, and other available materials regarding Harlots by Hulu. Join me, Ray, and my co-host, Kay, as we watch, read, and discuss these two provocative and intelligent stories. Please, God, watch over her, protect her, because this isn't the place with the still waters and the green pastures, if you hadn't noticed. This is the valley of death, and there is a fuck ton of evil to fear. Please, get her the hell out of here. And so begins The Handmaid's Tale, Episode 1, Season 3, entitled Night, or as I'd like to call it, Mom's Got Work. In this episode, the first of season three, we open on that quote. It is June speaking as we see Emily and Holly Nicole escaping. Offred, a.k.a. June's voice is raw, rough, but clearly hopeful. In this scene, June encounters Commander Lawrence. She is running down the road, clearly overcome, exhausted. He drives by, whips back, and then speaks to her. He confronts her about her choice, and she asks if he will take her to Commander Mackenzie's house in hopes of liberating Hannah, and then agrees that if they do that, she will flee to the north with Lawrence's aid. In scene two, we're returned to House Waterford, with everything inverted. Fred seems to be confined to June's room, Offred's room, the top floor, by Nick and his gun, where Fred apparently has been left to contemplate June's Latin graffiti on the wall. Serena, on the other hand, is downstairs and seems to be free, but she is either frozen with grief or has been sleeping, fallen asleep somewhere. Not really sure what room she's in, but she mounts the stairs and speaks with Fred in Alfred's old room. And she confides or confesses or just informs him that she actually helped Alfred escape with Hallie Nicole because it was, in her words, best for my child. Fred's rather gobsmacked, of course, left in the room with his thoughts as Serena leaves and Nick shuts the door on him. So he is sort of like still not in charge. In the next scene, June arrives at the Mackenzie residence, clearly hoping to get her hands on Hannah. She does manage to get in the house with the help of the 
Martha there, but it seems that Martha there also reported right away to Mrs. McKenzie because there's a tense confrontation between June and Mrs. McKenzie about the nature of motherhood. This also happens after, of course, June gets a chance to go and see Hannah in her room. She kisses her wrist. She ties a bit of string from her robe onto Hannah's sleeping wrist, and then she leaves after saying a few words about loving Hannah and wanting to get her safe. Or that she will. After the confrontation with Mrs. McKenzie, who clearly understands that some of this is really awful, instead of turning June into the authorities, she instead instructs her own driver slash I to return June to the Waterford home. When June arrives back at House Waterford, she finds the situation still pretty inverted, although Fred has at least gotten use of the full of the house because he's on the first floor. He and Serena are, I think, in the family room or the parlor of their house. Serena still looks like hell. She's a mess and clearly not doing well. Fred, Serena, June, and Nick are all in the room for a moment until Fred finally orders Nick to leave. And Nick goes, which is surprising considering just the scene before where they were both in it. He was basically keeping Fred prisoner. But Nick leaves, and as soon as he's gone, Fred turns and immediately tears into June. June doesn't see him for grass. She literally looks right past him to where Serena is standing and starts speaking to Serena, telling Serena why she did what she did. There's another confrontation here between Serena and June that really gets to the heart of what is motherhood. Both women clearly cared about this baby, this is a moment where we see, finally, it seems, that um, June is able to reach across the divide between herself and Serena and impress upon Serena a sense of empathy. For while Serena is screaming at June about having taken her baby and how did she, why did she leave her and where is she and is she unsafe and all of the horrible torment that Serena is feeling right now because she doesn't know where her child is, or quote-unquote her child is, June snaps back and reminds Serena that it was her, meaning Gilead, who chased her and Hannah through the forest, who shot her husband and pried her daughter from her arms, screaming, and turned her whole world upside down. That she hopes, and she says this to Serena, I hope it feels just like that. And in that moment, that connection is made. You can see it on Serena's face. And the best part about this whole scene, viewing it, was that Fred was left mute. Impotent, incompetent, and unable to either address either woman and their problems or what was going on. And right in front of him, a bond that he could not have and never would have bloomed between the two of them. Nick returns and Fred orders Nick to take June upstairs to her room. And of course, June does not need a chaperone. She is not interested. She has hugged it out with Serena. Serena has hugged it out with her. So without any acknowledgement of Fred whatsoever, she just turns on her heel and goes right past Nick and goes straight to her room. Now, Nick and her have a confrontation on the stairs in this scene, and Nick 
basically calls her out for not taking the opportunity to escape when she could, tells her that she'll never escape, and now she's pretty much made it impossible for her not to die in Gilead, to which she also says, I know. Seems a little foreshadowy to me. In the next scene, we open up with night sky, drones, flying over a riverbed, and Emily, with Holly Nicole, is running along the river, trying to figure out how to get across it with this tiny baby. Eventually, she does get herself out into the river, and as she is standing under a support for a bridge, a big gust of water comes along, a big wave, and kind of washes her downstream, and she goes under, and we don't see anything for a few minutes, or a few seconds, really, but we are supposed to assume, I think, it's a few minutes. And then they surface later, and Holly, who had been crying, was now quiet. Emily is terrified that the baby is dead, she talks to her, nuzzles her, and then the baby wakes up and starts touching her face. And just as we have that moment of relief, then a man in a police uniform with a flashlight shows up and starts talking to Emily. It takes a little bit for Emily to realize that she's actually crossed the border and that the policeman is asking her a stylized set of questions specifically to get her to ask for asylum in Canada. Next, we return to the Waterford house where Serena and Fred have a strained conversation. Serena is sitting at her dressing table and she is cleaning the stump of her pinky. She still has not taken a shower. She still has not changed her clothes. But Fred, on the other hand, is all suited up and ready to go back to the Sons of Jacob Congress. And he explains to her what lie he's going to tell to try to protect the family. She says to him, point blank, she doesn't need his protection. And he very clearly states to her that he's going to do it to protect his house, which I think is interesting. And then he goes on to say that he both masters and respects her, which I'm not really sure how that works in this context, but he suggests that. And then he leaves. This scene then shifts to Serena suiting up in her blue Mrs. Waterford outfit. She spends a little time at the mirror where she stares at herself and we see a range of emotions over her face that looks like fury and grief, maybe some shame. All of those things are visible. And then she picks up the alcohol bottle that she'd been using to clean the stump of her pinky and she starts to pour, but we're not really sure where. That scene then shifts again to June also starting to put herself together. So she's standing in front of the tiny sink in her room upstairs. She's washing her face. But it's clear that there is some groaning of timbers in the house. And she, in hearing it, she kind of sits up and she smiles and she can tell that something's on fire. So she goes downstairs. She's led by the smoke and the scent. Um, downstairs, finds Serena in Serena's bedroom, standing at the foot of her bed, which was, of course, the ceremony bed, and it is on fire, as well as probably most of the wall behind it. While Serena's standing there, you're not really sure if she's going to jump into those flames or what she's going to do. But June approaches her and offers her a hand. And the two of them eventually, with Rita and Nick, leave the house. The next scene takes us back to Canada, where Emily and Holly Nicole are in a hospital, I'm sure for a welfare check after being found on the side of a river. The scene is really brief, and it really is a nice little scene. Emily gets a standing ovation, but I'm guessing it's mostly because Canadians are nice. After that scene, we end up back at the Waterford house, and it is in ruins. Um, the women are outside. 
Nick's there. Fred's there. Serena gets in the car. Fred gets in the truck with Nick. And the red van is there. June enters the red van and is clearly being taken back to the red center. When she gets back to the red center, she's told that though Mrs. McKenzie was forgiving, they were not, and that she was going to have to be punished for her impromptu visit at the McKenzie house and Hannah. We don't have to see it this time, but they do torture June. Her feet get lashed again, and then she's put to work cleaning. Now, the next scene, we go back to Canada, and it is of Moira and Luke going to the refugee information center because they've been summoned there. Apparently, some information has come in about June, one we guess. When they get there, they get an envelope that has a picture in it, and it, of course, is the Polaroid that Serena Joy originally gave June of Hannah that June then tucked in Holly Nicole's blanket when she handed her over to Emily. While they're looking at it, Emily approaches them, still with Holly Nicole, and introduces herself as Emily and that June saved her life. That's really very short, and that's the end of that scene. And then the end of the episode is sort of three scenes in transition, and one is of June scrubbing the floors. After she had her feet beaten, she was put to scrubbing the floors at the Red Center. One of the other handmaids, who I don't recognize, walks up to her and tells her in a whisper that Emily and Holly Nicole made it to Canada and are safe. June has a moment we see on her face, silently exultant that that had happened. The next scene, we see her kind of limping, hobble walking through the barracks or dormitory at the Red Center, and she sees on her bed her wings and her red suitcase already packed up. She's then greeted by one of the aunts who tells her that she needs to get herself ready to go. She has a new posting already. The next scene, which is just sort of a derivative, moves on. She is, we assume, in a car that's going down a wooded state highway. And then the next scene, she's standing in a parlor, which doesn't look familiar to us. However, while she's standing there, she does a customary greeting when the commander comes in and we find out that it's Commander Lawrence. The house doesn't look anything like Commander Lawrence's house in the last season. I think this is very interesting. They sort of have a cheeky exchange where he asks her if she's going to be trouble and she says no. And of course we all know and so does he. That's not true. That is the end of episode one, season three, The Handmaid's Tale. Welcome to Handmaids and Harlots. I'm Kay. And I'm Ray. And we're your co-hosts for this podcast. So we, as promised, are getting together to discuss episode one, season three of The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. Mm -hmm. And holy cow, what an episode. Oh, yeah. I really did not expect this much that fast. (laughs) Yeah, right. Especially considering how much complaining apparently there was done by critics over how slow the episodes were. Maybe there's something going on in the next couple of episodes. I am going to watch two tonight, but I don't really get what the complaints were, really. I thought it was very masterfully shot, great acting. I I don't know what's their issue. Yeah, and the turnaround, I think I counted like total of like 12 plus scenes so it's not like stuck static in any one scene for very long other than the one between serena and june and 
Fred. I mean, that mm-hmm. seemed to me to be like the longest scene. And then the second longest scene was at the Mackenzie's, really. Oh, yeah. The pivotal theme of the episode, I think, was hammered home in those two scenes. And so it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, really, honestly, the whole reason she didn't go to Canada right? at all was supposed right. to be about this. And Kay and I were speaking just before we started recording, and we decided instead of arranging it by scenes, because it might get a little repetitive after we just did the walkthrough of episode one, we're going to do ours by what we identify are like the top four themes of the show. And some of the minor themes might get brought in depending on how they're related. From everything we can see in this episode, the primary theme of this episode, in fact, was motherhood and what constitutes motherhood. It's like the meta of the entire episode overarching. But then there are some other themes too, but that one's really, I think the big one. And I know I found the conversation between June and Mrs. McKenzie to be really informative. Actually that whole scene and not just a conversation, but that June did what she did despite knowing that it more than likely was not going to end up the way she wanted. Oh, yeah. I mean, even when she was just, she could have tried to escape with Hannah, she, but she didn't. She realized that it was just going to scare her. And because honestly, when she gave up, even when she was giving up, she was thinking about her child. You know, the whole thing of don't scare her. You know, she got down very quiet, very subdued. So that way they wouldn't wake up Hannah and Hannah wouldn't have to see her mother being arrested. Right. Which I think is super important for later when Mrs. McKenzie just tells her straight up, if you continue this way, this whole thing ends with you dying in front of your daughter. Mm -hmm. And she already is having nightmares about what happened before since she saw you at the summer house. You know, June is really confronted, I think, at this point with whether or not her desire to get Hannah out of Gilead is entirely for Hannah's good. Or if it is for her own peace of mind. I thought it was interesting the way they set up what the theme was going to be. In particular about how how Hannah was living. And I this is an interesting thing because it draws some parallels. Like if you look at the Waterford house. It is always in very kind of muted and subdued tones. Everything's dark. It feels almost cavernous that house. It does. It feels very sanitized, if that's another thing. Yeah, it's cavernous and it's cold and impersonal. It doesn't... The only room that really has any character, per se, is Fred's study. And I think that's purposeful. But even that, it looks so regimented. Yeah, regimented. The books are all arranged perfectly and he has all just the right things that any man of substance, quote unquote, would have in his study. But like that whole house is so cold. Mm-hmm. It just has such a cold, dark, hollow feeling, which I'll bring that up in a bit in another for another scene. But and you go when June looks through the windows into the Mackenzie house, she sees Hannah's shoes sort of askew on the floor with what you imagine were probably wet socks from a winter walk. Like and right at the end of the the kitchen island, right? And there's all those drawings all over the window, uh, like by the front door. Yes, there's like all of this. This is a child's home. Messages like everywhere. June goes through the house. She sees more of it. She gets upstairs, and Hannah's room looks like the room of a child who has cherished. And is loved. And I was also struck by Hannah's posture, which 
some people may not pay much attention to. If you study children who have post-traumatic stress disorder or have failure to thrive, they tend to sleep either on their stomachs or in the fetal position for years. If they're there's their trauma has not been addressed properly and they're not getting help or they don't feel secure or safe, they will curl up or they will sleep in a defensive posture. And one of the things that struck me right away in that scene is that Hannah was laying on her back with her arms open. I will say that this kid has to be a heavy sleeper. I mean, yeah. sirens, people coming into their room, someone tying something to her wrist, kissing her. How is she not waking up? Right. Although there is a good argument to be made that because June was not strange to her, that's another reason that she was able to do that. I mean, I've seen people that like grandma goes in the in the nursery and, you know, the baby wakes up, and mom goes in and nobody cares. <laughs> I just thought it was really interesting the way that they did this so well. Hannah's posture was relaxed and it was open and the room didn't look like a sanitized it didn't look anything even like Serena Joy's idea of like a shrine like nursery. Like literally it was human beings and a little girl who clearly had an active, happy, well adjusted life. And then here's June. I mean, the only creeper thing that reminds us it's Gilead really is that her fucking bedroom door has a glass pane in it so they can constantly be watching her. Mm-hmm. I really honestly think the conversation become between Mrs. McKenzie and June was kind of weird and almost in a weird kind of like just overall weird, I guess that she's acting like Alfred is some mother who put her child up for adoption and is trying to find her again. Like she made some sort of choice in this. Yeah. Like you've got to stop doing this. You know, she's happy. It's, it's almost sounding like she's trying to talk down somebody who made a choice that they regret. Well, and see, and I wondered, I can't, we'll get to this, I'm sure, when we do the reread, but I've wondered on occasion, and it's funny that you bring that up, because it kind of was a thing in the back of my mind. All that sort of thing. Right. That I kind of have to wonder if, I thought I read somewhere, somebody mentioned, maybe on Reddit, or maybe it's in the book, but I think a lot of the commander's wives that are not, like, in the Waterford's immediate circle... Mm-hmm. Don't don't know that these women aren't volunteers. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the Mexicans thought they were volunteers, right? Yeah. So I wonder if Mrs. McKenzie's laboring under the misconception that she indeed did, did give her up. Yeah, for the good of Gilead, right? <laughs> There's some kind of <laughs> some kind of strange thing, and I, she might assume it too that way because. Of the propaganda that Fred has, you know, engaged in about his perfect house and the things that June as Alfred has said, like publicly to these, you know, dignitaries about all of, you know, her position. Granted, it got, you know, reversed and taken back, but no one's going to let that part of that story come out publicly. Oh, goodness, no. But I'm sure, you know, there's Serena and Fred, at least before Gilead, were pretty savvy with media. So my guess is that. You know, there might have been some, but that's not to say take away from that. I think that's a really good catch that she does sort of talk to her like that. Like she's, you know, the grown up girl who gave away her baby at 15 and now wants to have it back. Mm -hmm. She also gave out a lot of information to Alfred while still asking her to stop confusing Agnes. She was still giving her information. Well, see, and I think 
the oh, dogs, the, like the dogs thing, mm-hmm. that whole conversation between them about that and how they kept moving closer towards each other while talking. Yeah. Although you notice when they were sitting at the table and June got recalcitrant with her and they got up and they moved and she was get her out of here. And then she starts up the stairs. She regains her position of power. Like they're talking as equals mm-hmm. and then they're not equals anymore she like mrs mckenzie makes it clear to do a power play and then motherhood again brings them back to each other's level so like you know mckenzie goes up the stairs then she comes back down the stairs and then they're eye to eye right and then they're talking about this i found it really interesting because they were playing like a strange game of motherhood rochambeau in that conversation Right. They're talking about Hannah's allergic. Uh, and, and June right away is like, yeah, she likes dogs, though. She's going to blah, blah, blah. She's good at that. And you know what I mean? Like they're having this conversation. And for a minute, you forget or they forget maybe that the power dynamic is what it is between them and that Agnes slash Hannah is not the same person to either of them. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when she says that thing about June's eyes and June is immediately snapped back to that angry, possessive. And I'm not saying for anybody who's listening, I'm not saying she doesn't have a right to be angry or possessive. It is her child. Oh, yeah. And people stole it from her. But that angry, possessive posture where that moment where they had of of equality as mothers, both obviously love and care for the child is lost Mm -hmm. where June June pulls the, you know, the or initiates another power play by her recalcitrance. And, and again, that's not judgment against June. That's June's feelings are valid. But it's interesting how that plays out. And in particular in this scene, because there's really she can't even be mad at Mrs. McKenzie in the same way she's mad at Serena, which we see later. I mean, she's I mean, she could she actually smiles for real mm-hmm. even in those, in those tough moments. That she's actually smiling for real. It's not fake like she does with Fred. It's not kowtowing like she does with uh, Serena Joy sometimes when she's right. trying to get snarky. It's an honest-to-goodness smile when she's right. talking about her child. It's yeah. really hard to see these two women who are talking about the same child connecting on levels that mothers do and know this child was stolen away. I think it's really interesting, too, because it brings up in that in that theme of motherhood, it begs the question. What is legitimate motherhood? Mm-hmm. Is it biological? Is mm-hmm. it nurture? Is it, can it be all of one and not the other? How does it dovetail? Does that make anybody's losses here unreal? And I think it's important that it asks that question because of what happens between her and Serena. And since we're talking about motherhood as a theme, we should, we can probably move to that scene, which is exceptional. By the way, I thought. Oh, God, yeah. For lots of reasons. Like, lots of reasons. I love that the minute the minute Fred sends Nick away, who has the gun, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make the guy with the gun leave so I can be an asshole because I'm fairly sure that if I'm an asshole in front of the guy with the gun, he might pop a cap in me. Like, literally, I thought that was great. I mean, just the absolute complete 
ignoring of Fred just shows how right. much power he's lost. I mean, he's sitting here screaming right. and begging to the two of them, and they're just completely having a conversation through him. Through him, right, which is what I was going to say next. So, like, Nick boogies, because, you know, he's apparently decided to let Fred have control of the house back at this point. And, yeah, he just lays into into Alfred, like, that's going to get him anywhere. And she just doesn't even, she's he's like a window pane. Because the only person she feels she owes an explanation to in this entire house is Serena. Mm-hmm. And why? Because she also acknowledges Serena, at some level, is a legitimate mother. That she's had that experience of motherhood and she understands she's connected so much with this child that there's no way she's going to think about Holly as anybody but Nicole. Right. And that she knows how it felt to her. Like this whole scene is so fantastic. And I, Yvonne is just, wow. And she comes across that room. Right. And she's like the most striking thing about her in this whole episode, other than this, these, these words in this moment is her appearance. Right. Because she's just a mess. And her hair is undone, and we've never seen her, except in her nightgown, right, with her hair down. We've never seen her look like this. No. She's, she's like, her clothes, she's been sleeping in them. Her hair is a fright for her. I would consider that a good hair day because I have bad hair. But she, <laughs> she, and she, she comes away from that fireplace like a woman possessed, like in her eyes. And she is just beside herself with grief and anger. She just walks right past, like, they just, like, are there. And she's like, it's their moment. And he's completely shut out. I honestly forgot about him in the scene. I just did. I was like, oh, God, yeah, Fred's there. I didn't because I love the fact that he was marginalized so greatly. Like, immediately, he thought he was a power player. And then he was immediately bitch slapped with, this is something ain't got nothing to do with you, motherfucker. This Mm -hmm. is... This is a woman's conversation, and this is not anything that you with your Bible and your finger cutting off and your ritualized rape can do a fucking thing about. Like, right this minute, you got nothing. You got zip. I think and that they, it was the, the imaging was kind of interesting about them hugging, and it almost kind of pans to Fred like, don't forget, this yeah, guy is right. still here. Well, the look on his face, though, was absolute defeat. You could see it was like... Him trying to figure out how do I navigate this? Mm-hmm. Right? How do I navigate this? But I love that whole scene. I love I love it that Yvonne comes at her and she's just so raw emotionally. You know, that Serena's just like lost and screaming and angry. And we've seen her like this before, but there's a vulnerability to this anger that we have not seen with her in her abusive engagements with with June previously. Like back in season one, when she dragged her up the st- when she caught her uh, right? after after um, Jezebel's that that scene in itself was just oh my goodness scary, right? And she did. There was no hint of like the vulnerable Serena in that. That was no. wrath. Like, that was just, just pure rage. And this was like desperate and hurt, wounded, right? And it's beautiful because at the same time, Elizabeth Moss as june is really reacting to this she's feeling it like she's felt this her empathy immediately is there's like none of her usual pity because they pity each other a lot in previous seasons when you know what i mean Mm -hmm. there's no pity no toxic pity anyway and then there's like this 
the eye language, like their bodies and the way they're looking at each other and the words. And then when Serena oversteps it, like pushes it too far, June snaps back at her. And that moment, like when Serena is like, looks at her, like that moment of, yeah, right? Yeah. (sighs) Yeah, it was heavy. Yeah. It was a great, great shot scene though. It was. And I, um, it was, and acted really well. Mm-hmm. Um, involving motherhood again, um, I think talking about Emily, like, yeah. the absolute fear on her face, it was just palpable for every scene that she's trying to protect this baby. She could not give this baby up. It's not just protecting a baby. It's because she's a mother and she understands what it's like to let go of a child mm-hmm. when you think it's safe. You know, I think that she did an amazing job acting out like those moments of absolute fear for right. these moments of security. Like when somebody, when they found her and they were trying to get her to ask for asylum, it was just almost painful to watch. Oh, yeah, because she was so into panic at that point. She wasn't even really hearing what was said. Mm-hmm. Alexis is so amazing. I just want to oh, say like, every scene she's in, I am utterly captivated. Oh, yeah, she's her facial expressions are just so amazing. Her eyes are like so expressive. It's so perfect for the character because so much of what she's thinking is in her eyes. I think the only person who outacts is Amelia Clark's eyebrows. (laughs) Oh Lord. Ah, Game of Thrones reference. Yay. Yay. Uh, But, But yeah, I'm like, if you think back on the scene in season one after her clitorectomy, Oh, ugh. Right? Just watching her face, even without the music, just watching her mm. face. It was just... And half of it's obscured. That's mask and then her eyes. Yeah. You're just like, holy shit. And then last season, when she decides to take down Aunt Lydia, the look on her face. Like, literally, her face. Just her face. Lexus face. It's amazing. Of course, her regular acting, the, the acting acting is pretty darn good, too. Especially like when she met up with Luke. Oh, yeah. She's still scared. I mean, like, the fact that, you know, she's suffering from PTSD is, like, pretty evident in everything she does. Oh. Like, every interaction with every single person that she meets, she trusts absolutely no one. She's terrified of absolutely everything, and she's on the defensive all the time. Gotta give the doctors from Canada some props for, for with sending all women. I believe, oh, yeah. if I remember that correctly, it was the nurses were all women, the doctors were all women. There might have been one dude, but he was in the back. Yeah. I think there was a black guy in the back. Could be. I can't quite remember off the top. I should have marked that down. Just the Mm -hmm. fact that they have that and they're trying to put her at ease and they didn't, they definitely did not reach out. Didn't touch her because they know, right? Somebody who has post-traumatic stress disorder, just in case anybody here doesn't know, who's listening, doesn't know, you don't have permission to touch somebody with PTSD unless they give it to you. Yeah, pretty much. Do not. No touchy, especially since you don't know what their reaction, what triggers certain things. Mm-hmm. But they didn't try to reach for the child beyond opening their hands. And when she pulled away, they just put their hands down. It was, yep. it was great. It was fantastic. I thought that was a really well done scene for as brief as it was. It was really beautiful. And I think I said it earlier in the recap, I have to, and I have, but I have to go with it again. It's, <laughs> it's just, you know, Canadians are just so nice. They are. They're so darn nice. Right? They are so nice. They just, you know, we're, it's a fabulous bit. I love everything we get in Canada, well, despite the fact that it's not a whole lot. 
Yeah. But I, I think that that's a really important part of this story, too, is that, you know, the refugee narrative and, you know, especially since everyone in Gilead who doesn't want to be there that's stuck there has this idea of, you know, the promised land when you get to Canada. And yeah, it's pretty it's, much <laughs> it's better, but they're still they're still all haunted. Yeah, especially in Little America. Yeah, you take you take Gilead with you after you've been there wherever you go, which is kind of like kind of a I think a bit of tip of the hat even in people's faces for things. Um yeah. that idea that Gilead's still going to be with you wherever you go, mm-hmm, kind of like that line go. from uh season 2 where June said Aunt Lydia said Gilead's always inside yes. inside you. Yes. Yes. Cuz it is. It's this it thing. Never go away. Motherhood is a big issue here. I think that's like the primary thing in this episode and what the writers are trying to interrogate. Not just within, of course, Gilead, because I mean, yes, works of fiction, you're supposed to, you know, immerse yourself in a world and experience things. But the main function, of course, of drama, you know, as stated by the Greeks, is to give us an opportunity to view things for ourselves in a way that is makes us uncomfortable but it doesn't make us make it impossible for us to work through what we're seeing. Because mm-hmm. you know, when we're in when we're in difficult circumstances, we don't always have you know we don't have the distance, right? So theater is supposed to provide that distance, but at the same time facilitate psychological experience. So I think there's an argument to be made that Handmaid's Tale, the book for certain, I know that that's part of Margaret Atwood's purpose of writing the books. Why the things that happen in the book and things that have happened in the show so far are things that have actually happened in history or are happening now to women in other places. So it's a polyglot of all these things that have happened to women. It does ask that question. What is motherhood? What do we feel about that? And what do we think about it? And what, whose feelings of motherhood are valid and whose aren't? Because I think it lies at the base of some of everybody's, a lot of people's discontent with, with Serena Joy and wanting to see her burn at the stake. Mm-hmm. And Which I can totally understand those feelings. I do on a really adolescent level. Like, mm-hmm. you know, my, my frog brain, you know, my amygdala is there for that. It's oh, totally. really, it's, it's there for this. But the rest of my brain... If I use the rest of my cerebral cortex, I don't want to see that. <laughs> what I want to see is reality and truth in a character, which I think is what we're getting, which is a complicated person who had a very idealistic view of how the world should work if, it, if all things were perfect, and then set about in her mis- their misguided way to create a perfect world and forgot what Fred says in episode five of the first season. But he says, to June in the library after he gives her the, I don't know which magazine, Vogue or something Cosmo, like that. Cosmo or whatever it was, he handed it off to her. But he handed her off the magazine and she's like looking at it and they're talking about it. And he said, We only wanted to make things better, but better is never better for everyone. It's just better for some. And that is a very Gilead way of looking at things because it makes it so easy to say, no, we can't help everyone and we won't. No matter what you do to improve the world, you borrow from Peter to pay Paul, as my mother used to say. Mm -hmm. No matter what you what you do, you're going to be shorting somebody, which is a very much a capitalist viewpoint and a scarcity based philosophy is that there isn't enough love. There isn't enough safety. There isn't enough food. There isn't enough anything good to go around. So you have to hoard what you can. And it definitely fits in with Gilead's perspective, including, you know, hoarding uteruses, apparently. And yeah. All of them. Ugh. 
shudder. That's our take on the motherhood thing. Unless Kay has anything else to add that like sort of struck her in terms of the theme. Not that quite. No. Okay. I think we could cover that quite well. Okay. So then I think the second most important one, which is power, how it gets used, who has it. I think this was a fantastic episode in a very emotionally cathartic way because Fred spends most of the time being <laughs> somebody's bitch. Oh, God, yeah. Loved it. I love that shoved his chest from the recap from last season. I forgot that Nick like was like, whoa, cowboy, get back in the I love that scene. And then Serena, when she wakes up and comes upstairs and she's like, because Fred's still in June's room and Alfred's room, staring at her Latin graffiti, right? He just doesn't move whatsoever. I, it's almost like he's having a talking heads moment from, you know, the song Same As It Ever Was. Yes. Like, where is my beautiful house? <laughs> like, like. How did I get here? Oh my God, what have I done? Like, it was like, <laughs> right then. I thought it was like fantastic. So he's sitting there like, like you know, a kid in timeout. And Nick's in the hallway with his heat. Like, yeah, bitch, you're in there. And then he, so he honestly looks like he's a babysitter with a pouting kid because he's just, he he's just crouched there, just staring at the floor like, when is this going to be over? Mom, where can I be off timeout? I've seen this face on petulant men. I have children. They're boys. They're grown up now, but <laughs> I remember putting them in timeout and them being looking like that after a while, sitting on the corner. And that's when I knew they could come out. It's when they quit screaming <laughs> and yelling at me and throwing their toys around and it got quiet. And then I'd look in the room and they'd be sitting on the end of the bed, just like, wow, this sucks. <laughs> You know, and that's how Fred looked. He looked like he, you know, just was sitting there going, oh, God, I wish mom would let me out. <laughs> and then we hear, and when we hear mom, here comes Serena, bump, bump, bump up the stairs. And this is what I meant, too, about the way that the masterful way in which this show is put together, as much as people can complain about the, you know, they hate being in the Waterford house because it's so depressing. There just is so much art to this, to the way that they put this series together. The other thing that I noticed is you do not hear the footfalls except the soldiers coming up the stairs at the Mackenzie house. Literally do not hear them. But yeah, you hear Serena, quiet. right? You hear Serena coming from her, from the parlor or her bedroom or the nursery. I'm not sure where she was in that scene. I, I can, really didn't either. Right. So like you can hear her coming. That house is empty. That echo and the sound engineering for that is like meant to, in, to elicit in us the sense of emptiness in this house, that it's soulless. There is something that makes me think about mm -hmm. is from the very first season when uh, right before the first time for the, uh, the ceremony that we got to see and you hear her heels first when she comes into the, it comes into the room and June says he has to ask permission. This is her domain. And it almost feels like because Fred has obviously put the home because he mentions before with power you know when he was leaving for work that he's kind of summed her up as the house and her as one thing yeah his possessions so it being seeming like her taking the whole house as her domain right so like you hear her coming you hear her coming so but you don't see fred until she wants him to right and then she like she's in the room 
And he's like, stands up and he's all, now he's ready to assert himself because now he has his human shield. Because, you know, clearly, I think at this point he's had time enough to figure out, okay, so Nick helped them. Mm -hmm. Whatever happened, they're all in it together against me, right? And he's hoping now Serena's coming with you and she's, I don't know, maybe she feels bad or maybe she didn't know or she was so distraught or whatever. But, you know, he's going to order her to order Nick to move because he can't order Nick to move because if he could, he wouldn't have been stuck in June's room all night long. (laughs) (laughs) And Serena does it. Nick still stands there. She doesn't turn around and go, Nick, fuck off. She just is like, blah, 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 and go call 911. And she's like, no, I think we need to give her more time. And the look on Fred's face. Just like I'm sorry? Like, total disbelief. Wait, you mean you bitches was in this together? <laughs> and then and then fear. Because not only were they in it together, but they also got the guy with the gun to go along with it. Like, literally. Like, oh, yeah. It, the, the, whole, the whole thing becomes clear to him outside of his whack- hubris as you know being a man in Gilead like he's like suddenly I love that scene I loved it it was glorious and I love the fact that he was like reduced to you know an angry seven-year-old who'd been put in his room for timeout well the grown-ups were (laughs) grown-upping for adulting they are adulting I will say that for there was something that I thought was kind of an interesting way of I don't know if if I'm the only one who saw it like this, but with the whole fire scene, there was a kind of thing that this whole kind of scene felt a lot of like a lot dreamlike. There was like, you know, this whole purification rite. Oh, yeah. The the spiritual aspect of it was really, really impressive, actually. But it was like you only saw the fire in the bedroom on the bed. Right. But yet the house is moving and rumbling like that seat of power, this bedroom where all of these ceremonies, these shifts of power is the only thing holding up the house. Yes. Yes. And as a symbol of the abuse that both women have suffered, that bed is burning. And that house is crumbling. Mm-hmm. Right. I thought that scene was super powerful. I think the whole of that scene is super powerful. And I did notice that, but not quite to the level you did. I love that when I read your notes that you brought up the fact that it was like a spiritual cleansing. Oh, like, yeah. I mean, you can almost see the smoke, right? As like smudge smoke going through the house and just all the spirits and the negativity and the anger and the hatred and the abuse and the violence and all of this stuff being cleansed. Like, it's kind of like a physical representation of that, which I thought was really cool that you caught that. Because I, I had that, like, I had a a feeling of it being really important and certainly spiritual for Serena, but I'd love that you kind of picked up this other thing I I missed. Oh, well. (laughs) What I really was struck by was when we cut to that scene. Well, and I want to go back because we got got a little ahead of ourselves, but we will go back a little bit in a minute. That I loved seeing Serena armor up Mm -hmm. because like her appearance is clearly a thing we're supposed to take notice of for the whole first half of the book or first half of the show including the scene where fred comes in which i also think is super interesting and i i guess i will bring it up now because we're going to segue it kind of is all one like moving scene into this but when she's sitting at her dressing table in her room and she is cleaning her stump and she still looks like hell 
but she's worried about herself. Mm. And she's staring at the mirror, right? So we know that I love the symbolism of that. Like she's sitting at the mirror and she's cleaning the stump and she is considering. You can just imagine the things that are going through her mind. Self-reflection, right? She's in a place where she is inner focused and she is self-reflecting because she's sitting. She's worried about her wounds, right? And the loss of her power that that whole nullification of her bodily autonomy is like right there for her to deal with every day, cleaning that wound. Mm -hmm. And then Fred walks in and he's all put together. He's back to normal shit ass self and his fucking commander (laughs) uniform and his smarmy goddamn smile. And his, you know, and he's all using that, that patronizing father. Are you okay? Love you. You poor weak creature thing. That he does when he's gaslighting either Serena or June. I will say I'm living for Serena Joy's face when she was cleaning that surgical wound. And he says that all things will be as they were before. Mm-hmm. And you just see that look on her face and you're like, something's no. going to happen. No, fucker. They can't go back. You cut my finger off. There's kind of a leeway there. Right. And I love this because... I I love this scene as the segue into her armoring up for this reason is that all of those things are going on. But you notice she's looking at herself and Fred's looking at her like he like the way that's shot so that you can see exactly like he has working. He's looking at her. The thing he has to control to make his life go back into control because it's out of control. So like it's trying to control. And she's like he's still off scene. Right. Because she's focused on herself now. She's literally like the way that scene is like constructed, like the whoever this does these set designs and, and storyboards. I'm the way they set this stuff up. The director is genius. So she's like, and then you get to see that look right in her face. Cause she's looking in the mirror and we're working on her finger and looking in the, and he says that she looks in the mirror and you get to see it too. The moment she realizes it, like she sees herself seeing this, like that moment of clarity that we have when we have reached the bottom, right. Of a, an addiction or a bad relationship or Whatever it is, when we have that moment of clarity, when it starts to all really click, and she's having it right now, like right then, and he is over there trying to control and gaslight like like normal, and she's just not, she hears him, but her filter's different now. Like she's hearing different things than she ever used to hear. And after she got dressed, which you could kind of see as putting her armor on again. Yes, I wanted, yeah, I wanted to get back to it because it's perfect. It's so methodical. And every time we've seen her dress, and you know, we've seen her dress several times in this show. There's like a purpose to that. Is it is. It's her, it's her armor. It's her costume. It's her persona. It is her badge of status, right? Because there's no, the big deal is we don't have fashion and nobody wears, everybody wears it so that you, there is the classless society, right? But wearing that blue is what gives her status. Yeah. Yeah. It's her status. Super important. And that she looks a certain way is like super important. So this time when we see her dress, though, the question is, is she putting on armor? Is she putting on a disguise? Well, I mean, you look at her and there, there is just a rage in the first head on shot after Fred leaves. Just immense amount of rage. And as she backs up, you can kind of see her trying to soften her look back to what she normally looks like when other people see her, but it's just, it's not, it's not happening. 
Yeah, she put up. She put her. She put the armor back on, but she or the the costume back on, but she does not feeling it. Mm-mm. And you can see for a minute, like there's an interesting flash of emotions too. I thought that were like somewhere between rage and then shame, just horror. Like she has like that moment, and then there's that resolve that comes out at the end, and then she walks off to get the alcohol. And you, oh, right, and you're like, wow. So that's a thing. And she's like, I have the reins and I'm not giving them up. And which is, I think, the thing that's important to notice about, like, that's the power thing here. Before the revolution, it seemed to be the alpha partner in their relationship. All the flashback scenes that we see. She really does. I'm going to mention, though, I completely, I was so sucked into the scene, I completely forgot about the shot where we had already seen in previews that she, the bed was on fire. So when she was reaching for the alcohol, I completely forgot. And I was like, oh, my God, she's going to drink the alcohol and die. And I'm like, afterwards, I'm like, come on, girl. You you saw the you saw the previews, you know. Well, the thing is, I try to block out like if I get I didn't watch most all of the previews except that first one because I didn't want to spoiler it for myself too badly. So I totally forgot about it. Like, and at that point, I was also watching it at whateverthefuck.com at night because, you know, I couldn't wait till the next morning. I had to be up to watch this. So I'm like sleepy, but I'm watching, you know, the first time. Second time, yeah, it made more sense. But then I was like, oh, yeah, I think I think we saw that something. But then there was fires in the neighborhood, too, right? At mm-hmm. the end of the last episode, I wasn't sure where the fire came in. But I was afraid she was going to commit suicide, too. I thought, oh, no, don't. Serena, don't drink that. Especially because in the shot, the first things you see are like she lifts it chest high, like she's gonna. Yeah, but then you see the warning signs that are that are aimed skull towards the, the camera, the skull and crossbones, and and fire. So I was like, "What is she doing?" <laughs> and then I hear it pouring. You hear that drip, 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 and I'm like, "Oh shit, <laughs> something's getting lit up." But I didn't know what she was gonna light on fire. Like I, I could, I did blank out that it was the bed. It could have been anything. Could have been. Fred's, I, it could have been Fred's office, which is where I probably would have started because, you know, <laughs> I'd, all good anarchists start with that. And that was just fantastic. But I think that that speaks, this whole scene speaks to the power. She used to have the power in that blue suit, but that blue suit's not where she actually has power. Where she has power is in owning the fact that she's a woman and she has power because she's a woman, not because she's a commander's wife and not because she can or can't give birth or not because of any of the things that she thought before. I love it. It's just, I love it so much. I know. There were so many great shots here. There were. And then I love that they kind of give us the, the second of it, right? With June upstairs in her room and she's not. She's just waking up and getting her shit together. And she's been on fire for, you know, years now. <laughs> like, at a, slow, at a slow burn, right? And we know that she's being very careful because she has to be this slow burn with her rage and her anger at the circumstances. And she just is like, wow, the house is groaning. Like, that's a noise. In a brick house in particular, when that you hear that noise, it's never good. No. And then she comes, the smoke. And realizing, oh boy, right? Like something is not right. Although I love it that she takes her fucking time. Because she knows she's not like immediately in danger, I think. And I'm guessing she already knows. Because she knows where to go. Serena's bedroom, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's the only place that it could be. Yeah, Serena's burning shit down. I'm going to go help my sister and get her out of here. And I know that's a a hot take. And some of you that hear this are going to like get a voodoo doll and start sticking me with pins. But (laughs) I guess... They are the sisterhood now. 
in some weird, twisted way. They were a sisterhood before. The problem is that Serena didn't see it that way. Yeah. She's got to look at that. That's something that we as feminists have to acknowledge and have give some space to. I mean, we don't have to give make excuses and we don't have to coddle them, but we no. deal with plenty of women with internalized misogyny. So looking at Serena is shouldn't be a surprise to us. We know women that could be like this, probably know women that are like this in their private thought. Oh, yeah. And do we give up on them? Are we going to throw them like kindling on a fire? It doesn't make us any different than those people that we can't stand if we act that way so you know for me with serena it's about i want to see some her working on redemption rather than just receiving it yeah is it true is she true and that will be the thing is is she a true character right is she is her narrative true we'll find out won't we if she that's why i wondered about the is it armor or costume like is she gonna wear that blue suit now and and as a costume that the real serena is alive again inside and that serena who was an idealist and believed in a good thing could come of something like you know what i mean like is that what we're gonna get or yeah is the show gonna take the easy route and just immediately turn her into you know a crusading white knighter with a because i don't think that's a good idea but we'll see what happens so we talked about motherhood and power I think the other things we need to discuss, and maybe we can we can talk about it at the end because it's sort of mentioned most definitely at the end of the show. But I want to talk for a minute about the self-destruction as a theme here. Mm-hmm. June deciding not to leave Gilead self-destructive, yes or no? I think in some ways that she can be, yeah. that she is so focused on the end goals rather than focusing on the next step, the next step that should be it. Yes, a handmaid is missing. You need to not rush to your daughter. If you're going to be hiding, hide. Don't rush right there. I think it's pretty telling that she decided to stay. And I think that's one of the things that <laughs> Mrs. McKenzie and Fred, strangely enough, and Nick all bring to her attention. I will say that it sounded like Commander Lawrence just recapped our thoughts of the ending of last season. What are you doing? Why are you here? Right. Well, and the thing is, too, I think it's funny. I wonder if Fred thinks he's in love with her. I wonder if anybody, I wonder if anybody else got that, that Fred thinks he's actually in love with her. I'm trying to save your life. Yeah. He's so infatuated with her that he can't yeah. see that, you know, she's honestly not in love with him. There is nothing. That she's actually been more successful in gaslighting that motherfucker than him, her. It's true. True facts. But they all do say to her, I mean, Mrs. McKenzie says, if you keep coming after Agnes, Hannah, you are going to end up dying in front of her, which is true. And Nick says, you're going to, you never get out now. You're going to die here. Mm-hmm. And she says, I know. <laughs> and, and, and Waterford himself says, you know. You, they'll put you on the wall. They're going to put you on the wall. You're going to die. I'm trying to save your life. She legitimately is on a collision course with dying. And I think the show is doing a pretty good job. Hopefully better than Game of Thrones did for people who didn't read the books. Oh, yeah. With Daenerys Targaryen. That was written on the wall, folks. Read the books. <laughs> the show didn't do a great job with it, really. But anyway, we won't go. We, I'm not going to go on that tangent. <laughs> but they're doing a better job of stacking it up. It's pretty clear that she is on a collision course with dying. Oh, I yeah. feel it. I feel the foreshadowing here is almost heavy-handed. In fact, mm-hmm. because of the way. I mean, even Lawrence kind of alludes to it. Oh, he yeah. doesn't say it straight up, but kind of alludes to it. And the, the their first that first scene after he whizzes past her and then whips a shitty and comes back to pick her up, like, what the fuck are you doing here? 
<laughs> and I love that. I love I love that character. I really hope he doesn't I turn did. into a total shit lord, but I really <laughs> I really kind of like him right now. I know I have. I, know. Heard, I, I went on Reddit last night. It was a bad kid. I read some stuff. It sounds like he might be riding the riding the edge of shitlord, but I'm gonna reserve my judgment till I watch the episode so I can decide for myself. So it seems like she's really on a, a course of self destruction. It's interesting because Fred sort of was before this. <sighs> I think, yeah, I think there's just a great deal of, I think there's a great deal of stuff that she got, that she's got to work with, whether she's going to survive or not through Gilead. Right. And one of those things is she may have to accept the fact that Hannah's liberation is going to have to happen once Gilead's liberated, mm -hmm. which I don't think she's willing to swallow. But I think Mrs. McKenzie did every freaking thing she could to make it clear to June that in every possible way that Mrs. McKenzie had to make Agnes Hannah's life good, normal, and happy she was doing it. Oh, yeah. And clearly that commander is a better person than Fred. I don't even have to meet the guy. And I mean, we can, oh my God, it's a patriarchally oppressive society. There are no good men. Fine. No good yeah. man except a pair of eyebrows. And Nick is sort of clueless. <laughs> a pair of like, eyebrows. 45% of the time, Nick is walking around with his head up his ass like every other. I won't say that. A little like Luke. It's funny. June has a thing for guys who walk around with their head up their ass. Anyway. <laughs> Just going to say that and get it out there. You just had to do it. I did. I did have to say it. I love Nick. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a Nick hater. I think he's adorable. And I think that if I were in June's position, I would go there. But I'm also saying that I think it, I think that he's got some blind spots too. But then they all do. Like everybody in it is pretty human. And that's what I like about it. And what I meant when I said that about Serena Joy's character being true. Is her character true? Nick is true because he is good, confused, sometimes bad, wrought with guilt, sometimes is stuck in so stuck in his guilt he can't act properly, right? Yeah. Fred has some good inclinations, but they're com almost completely subverted under his love of power and himself. Serena has definitely has some good qualities to her, but again, she is sublimated herself to this philosophy, this theology, this theocratic view, and this romantic la-la land of, you know, some imagined perfect past where, you know, everything worked out good if you just believed in God and were pious. Fucked up. It is, you know, if you had just been the right church. Right. I think the only person that in this, that I have yet to see a soft spot in their thinking is Rita. Yeah. Rita's like the secret genius in that household, I really think. She sees everything and says she keeps nothing. Her mouth shut until she absolutely has to say things or do things. And then she's on it. Spot on. She's like right there. I love Rita. I do. I, I want to know so much more about her. I know. I hope we get some more development of like what Martha culture is like in this because in this season goes on because I really, I really dig Rita and the other. I love that whole bit. I thought it was really, I like how they're becoming more important, I guess. Pretty much. Yeah. And I love Lawrence's Rita because she was a badass. <laughs> <laughs> Swears like a sailor throws pots. Tells him to get fuck off or kiss her ass. I don't remember. She does tell him off, though, when we first meet him last season. I think there's a big thing of self-destruction. Before, it was mostly Fred because he 
kept doing stupid shit that you knew eventually Nick was going to like drop off the dossier with somebody. <laughs> Fred was going to go out in a black wagon. But, you know, I think we see a lot more of that now in June that it's really self-destructive. That she's maybe letting her anger get the best of her and she needs to rein it in maybe. Maybe. She can. We've seen her do it. Oh, yeah. We've seen a lot of it. It's... It's whether she's going to be able to to learn from her obvious mistakes of things going terribly awry. Yeah. And we saw Serena make her big choice. She, I think she was fixing to jump in that bed until June came and got her. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think she was fixing to jump in that bed, which <laughs> I'm really glad she didn't. Yeah. I think with all this that's happened and the character development we saw in this one episode already this season, I think we might there might be things yet to learn from Serena Joy. I am still really, really, really hoping for more backstories. Agreed. And then there's the final of the four themes that we really noticed is faith. Mm -hmm. This is probably the hardest one for me to engage really in this show for the reason that I I don't I personally identify as Christian mm-hmm. and most of the people that I know that are like wear their Christianity like some people wear their being vegan those people really put me off so and I just imagine Fred and Serena is the sort of people that you meet at a dinner party and it isn't in five minutes that they're telling you about their church and I just am not down with these sorts of individuals not even a little bit. So I have a hard time with this, the religious part of this show, because my experience with people of that ilk are largely negative. So whenever there's a display of faith in the show, I kind of get the twitches. <laughs> eh, twitch. But I think it is important in this show. I don't know how important it is to June, though. But I, I hope they plumb a little bit. Does June strike you as a true believer? <sighs> I I think that she sounds kind of like, honestly, how my mother is with Christianity, that uh, she wasn't really a true believer before, but this heartache, this horror, things that have no possible real explanation, that it feels too wrong to be just aimless, that you need somebody who's supposedly supposed to be focused on the right and good. Right. You have to put faith in something, and sometimes even something you may not believe in originally can do it. Right. I just think it's interesting. I hope they interrogate that a little bit in the upcoming episodes because I think it'll be super shitty if we find out that she used Faith as a way to manipulate Serena. Yeah, because you could see she did it in the first part of the scenes when she was talking to her uh, uh, about the child. Yeah, she did. She used the Bible and reading the Bible as a manipulation against Serena and Serena lost a finger for it because it worked. And I mean, in this scene, she was leaning so much on Serena Joy's faith to let this kid be free to make it seem like they were on the same the same aisle there. I'm going to be really upset if that's just smoke and mirrors out of June. And not because I think I want to see June be religious. They, that part of Gilead that stays in June becomes, you know, this unabiding faith in God. The Christian yeah, I mean, version of, you know, the guy in the sky. I will be disappointed if that's where well, this I mean, ends up. She, uh, she, didn't, she didn't stay broken June for very long either. I mean, granted, no. she still got some twist backs to that, but we were worried she was going to spend the next like season or so in that form. Right. Give her some time. She probably won't be. I hope not. Because I would hope that the original Holly, her mother, that crazy gynecologist, birth control handing out, abortion giving, goddess feminist. worshiper, feminist, got somewhere with her at the core, I hope. But we'll see what happens. I like that you picked that up. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. It seems like in that moment that they're the only ones who do have faith. Yeah. I mean, Nick seems to push the point that 
June's going to die. She's dead. She came back, so she's dead. Right. Fred seems to continually make the point that if you don't believe in me, there is no hope. Right. But these two are, at the very least, even if June is still using the faith to get, you know, not murdered by Sabrina Joy, at the very least, very least, it's some monicum of faith. Right. I mean, maybe, you know, God is just a good orderly direction. Maybe that's what she means. And that's okay, too. I mean, mm -hmm. agnosticism is its own, has its own benefits. It allows you to believe pretty much whatever you want to when you feel like believing in it or not. But, too true. But yeah, I, I think those are really kind of the big themes, at least that we identified. Those of you listening to the podcast are absolutely welcome to drop us a line in any of our social media. So Twitter, you can drop us a line at our blog on WordPress. You can email us. All that information is provided in the episode notes, and I'll run through it at the end of the episode. I think we've kind of run through all of those. Like, all of what we saw is, like, the big, the really big themes in it that were super important to address. And because I'm a sucker for cinematics, I maybe more, I, I, you know, I'm sorry if I drove everyone crazy with my focus on, like, set design <laughs> and the rest of it, but it's a thing. That stuff is important, you know what I mean? Like, if you're gonna do it, do it well. I'm okay with black box theater, but then it needs to be, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of like we discussed about rain. If you're going to do a costume drama, Make sure that your costumes are actually historically accurate and don't have zippers. <laughs> or no hoods. Right? Anyway, I feel really optimistic about this about this season. I'm I'm looking into it being very optimistic, depending upon how uh episode two goes. Depending on it. <sighs> I know, <laughs> right? Those other two episodes. If these other two episodes go well, I am going to say that I'm putting more faith in it than I did for Game of Thrones first three episodes. Oh my god, episode two is the only like they just skipped the whole rest of the season. I I will say this though is that I love the way this show does do this to us. This is a good first episode because it builds us up. It builds up so much. Yeah, Serena's really mad. She's not taking any of Fred's shit. Fred has been bitch slapped hard. June is out of his control. June is living with Lawrence. And, you know, that's got to be maybe better. I don't think he's oh. going to force her to have sex, which is going to be nice for June no matter what. He didn't do it with uh, Emily, so. Emily, no, I don't think he gives a shit about any of that. So, like, we're all built up for things to be really, like, oh, we're on an upswing. So, I wonder if the two-by-four with the nails in it is coming next week. Well, in episode two. I guess we'll find out when we watch it. We By the will. way, folks, don't give us spoilers, please, because we won't discuss ahead. We're not going to discuss ahead. We're going to try to go episode by episode, despite the fact that I guess they're going to be releasing three episodes at a time. So we're going to get it in chunk, 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 chunk. We can only watch so many so fast. We don't want these to be three-hour podcasts. Come on. Right, uh, right. And we have real life to consider. So there's that. So we're just going to like, and I'm good. And I wanted to binge, trust me, but I had to work the next day and I wouldn't have done anyone any good if I had not slept all night. So Too true. You do get a little wonky. I, d I get weird. You do. I was going to drink whiskey tonight during this one, but I'm going to save that for later. I'm going to drink whiskey with a friend of mine instead. But my lovely oh, wife does. Say, my lovely wife does say if we're doing a wine episode, at the very least, let her know so she can get some wine for me. Yes, we may do a wine. We will. We'll let you know about the wine episodes. Major deaths will oh, yeah. be wine episodes, and I think we might we might see one or two this season. Probably. 
I'm, I'm, Although I'm going to say if it's Fred, we're going to – it's a whiskey night. That's going to be a whiskey night because we're going to be like, you know, singing rebel songs. <laughs> I'll teach, teach An- Andy Foggy Doo and we'll get in with my Irish ancestors and we'll do, be doing the singing the, singing the rebellion songs. Cause... <laughs> or just ding dong, the bitch is dead, the bitch old bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like that. Anyway, so that's all I think all we have on this. You got something? Do you got some really great stuff you want to throw in? You've been holding out on me? I don't know. (laughs) No? You're not holding out on me? I don't think so. Don't think so. Oh, she thinks a lot. Don't let her play that game. (laughs) She's. Her show notes are a hot mess, but she thinks a lot. (laughs) My show notes are also a hot mess. But I tried to type them up. Oh, Lord. I just type everything up. So I think with that, we're going to sign off. We hope that you guys enjoyed this. I hope that you enjoy future episodes if you enjoy this episode. Because we enjoyed making it, obviously. We did. We love this show. This is the best part about this podcasting business is that her and I would have more than likely gotten into Discord to talk about this. Anyway, we're just doing it now and recording it at the same time. Yeah. And And thinking a little harder about it besides yeah fuck fred yeah that's generally sometimes what the entire first seasons would have been <laughs> fuck that guy would have been way into it i you know probably I'm with sorry. whiskey <laughs> yeah because i think like i said in our opening episode he's like ruined that actor's ruined for me i i know ruined. him and his brother just ruined just ruined. no because i love the grand budapest hotel well i never saw him in that so that's why oh that's so good and constant gardener is also really good in it okay, we're <laughs> gonna talk about we're gonna stop talking about the fines brothers now because we're not fangirls okay totally not, not. totally not so until next time praise be the fight praise be the fight bitches <laughs> all right that's it we're done And that's a wrap on another episode of Handmaids and Harlots, the podcast. We are indebted to EDM Mond for use of their song, Memories, Innocence of a Girl, available through Audio Library. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please smash your like button wherever you find us. Follow us on Twitter at HandmaidsH, where you can make comments, share news and thoughts, or email us directly at HandmaidsH n harlots at gmail.com and for essays by either myself or Kay, check out and subscribe to our wordpress blog at handmaidsnharlots.wordpress.com until next time peace be with you peace